Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. You might have noticed this episode is episode 11.9 of This Pathological Life. Dr. Travis Brown, why was it named thus? So this is a dedication to uh, 9-11. And this is a, a tribute to the heroes that went in. And we're looking at it through the lens of pathology uh, and in fact, we have a voice, lots of voices we'll be sharing today, but one who'll be joining us uh, live is Dennis Strenk, pathologist assistant from Milwaukee. He'll be joining us. I look forward to that. And personally, I was actually on air in radio in Adelaide on the night that September 11 happened for us and uh, broke the news. So it's quite poignant to reflect back on that. It is. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think anyone... Uh, will forget where they were when they heard this information. So this, again, is a, is a tribute to those who were the first responders for 9-11. In the seat pocket in front of you, you'll find the flight safety card, which we now ask you to read before takeoff. Thank you for your attention, and we wish you all a pleasant flight. Let's go through the timeline for the first part of this episode. It was September 11, 2001. Uh, Four aeroplanes hijacked by 19 members of an extremist Islamic terrorist group, Al-Qaeda. And it started in local time in America at 7.59 a.m. American Airlines Flight 11, which was plane one, takes off from Boston's Logan International Airport bound for L.A. with 81 passengers. It's about half full. Five terrorists, 11 crew members on board. At 8.14 a.m., a second plane... United Airlines Flight 175 uh, took off also from Boston's Logan International Airport, bound for LA with 56 passengers, about one-third full, uh, five terrorists, nine crew members on board. And then at the same time that was taking off, the first plane had its final communication with air traffic controllers. 16 seconds later, the controllers instruct the pilot to increase the plane's altitude. And there's no response. At 8.19, a flight attendant on that first plane alerts American Airlines that the plane has been hijacked. She reports that the cockpit is not answering and the hijackers reportedly have a bomb. Two flight attendants and a passenger have been stabbed. The cockpit's not answering. Somebody's stabbed in business class. And um, I think there's mates that we can't breathe. I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. At 8.20am, a third plane, American Airlines Flight 77, departs from Dulles International Airport near Washington, D.C., bound for L.A., 58 passengers on board, one-third full, including five terrorists and six crew members. At this point, the first plane turns off its transponder, making it difficult for air traffic controllers to monitor its course. A few minutes later, 8.24am, accidentally broadcasting over air traffic control channel instead of the public address system within the plane, a terrorist on that first plane announces they have some planes 
but everyone's to stay quiet as they're returning to the airport. Is that American 11 trying to call? Buddy, we have some claims. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We're returning to the airport. And uh, who's trying to call me here? American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody moves. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any moves, you'll danger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. At 8.42am, the fourth plane, the United Airlines Flight 93, departs from Newark International Airport in New Jersey, carrying 37 passengers. It's only one-fifth full, including four terrorists and seven crew members. A few minutes later, a second flight attendant on the first plane is on the phone with air officials. They report that the plane's in rapid descent and is flying way too low. Hey, can you look out your window right now? Yeah. Can you, can you see God about 4,000 feet, about 5 east of the airport right now? Looks like he's... Yeah, I see him. You see God? Look, is he descending for the building also? He's descending really quick too, yeah. Well, that's... Oh, he's 500 feet now. He just dropped 800 feet in like, a, like one, one sweep. That's, that's another situation. Who, what kind of airplane is that? Can you guys tell? I don't know. I'll read it out in a minute. Another one just hit the building. Wow. Wow. Another one just hit it hard. Another one just hit the worst side. Just came apart. Holy smokes. At 8.46am, the first plane crashes into the north tower of the World Trade Center between floors 93 and 99. Today's date is September 11th, the year 2001. That was an explosion. <laughs> At 8.51am, the second plane unexpectedly changes its altitude. Efforts to contact the plane by air traffic control are unsuccessful. A flight attendant on that plane calls officials to notify them that the plane's been hijacked and both pilots are dead. 8.54am, the third plane turns from its assigned route. At the same time, the second plane sets its course for New York City. Two minutes later, the third plane turns off its transponder. Then at 9.03am, the second plane crashes into the south tower of the World Trade Centers between floors 77 and 85. At 9.25am, Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, bars all civil aircraft in the United States from taking off. At 9.29am, the fourth plane declares May Day over radio transmission and a physical struggle is heard. Seconds later, someone yells, get out of here. That's American 10.60. 9.32am, on plane four, terrorists announce they have a bomb on board. a.m. the third plane crashes into the Pentagon. At 9.41 a.m., the fourth plane's transponder is turned off. 
It's 9.42am now and the FAA orders all civil aircraft flying in US airspace to land. At 9.57am, passengers on board the fourth plane rush the cockpit in an attempt to retake the plane. The terrorists roll the plane from side to side and up and down, but passengers continue to batter the cockpit door. Two minutes later at 9.59am, World Trade Center, South Tower, collapses. At 10.02am, passengers close to breaching the cockpit door of the fourth plane, the terrorists go into sharp descent. At 10.03am, that fourth plane crashes in a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. At 10.28am, World Trade Center, North Tower, collapses. This terrorist attack changed the course of US history. The effects of this are still felt to this day. So the South Tower took 56 minutes to collapse. The North Tower took one hour and 42 minutes. Almost 3,000 people died in these attacks. The planes used in both North and South Tower against them were Boeing 767-200ER, which their weight when empty, was 80 tonnes. When full, was up to 142 tonnes at maximum capacity. So when we look at each plane, Plane 1, American Airlines Flight 11, had approximately 9,700 gallons of jet fuel, around 36 to 37,000 litres. It crashed into the North Tower at 440 miles per hour, approximately 700 kilometres per hour. Plane 2, United Airlines Flight 175, around 9,100 gallons of jet fuel, or 35,000 litres, crashed into the South Tower at 540 miles per hour, 870 kilometres per hour. When we look at what this caused, it's an acute environmental disaster. Each tower weighed around 250,000 tonnes each. That's 500,000 tonnes for both the Twin Towers. There was 200,000 tonnes of steel, 425,000 cubic yards of concrete, 6 million square feet of masonry, 5 million square feet of painted surfaces. We have 7 million square feet of flooring. There was over 40,000 windows, which was around 600,000 square feet of window glass, and 200 elevators, all mixed with around 19,000 gallons of jet fuel, around 70,000 litres, and with fires burning of over 1,000 degrees centigrade, or 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. This all collapsed and disintegrated. The dust plume reached a height of around 1.5 kilometres, or almost a mile into the air. Three inches thick dust was found six blocks away, and extended greater than five kilometres away. 
And this is the dust they call WTC dust, don't they? That's right. That's what it's known as now. And this is what is the focus of this podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. My guest today is Dr. Gary Berman. Dr. Berman is a forensic odontologist, and he's also a member of the Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team, also known as DMORT. Today on the show, Dr. Berman will tell us all about his work with DMORT, including the World Trade Center site and Hurricane Katrina. Now, here's Dr. Gary Berman. Can we talk a little bit about a couple of the uh, sites that you've been to? I know in 2001, you were at the World Trade Center site, and then uh, you were you were also at Hurricane Katrina in uh, 2005. Sure. What we did was very similar, but the situations are totally different. So uh, I'll let me talk first about my experience with the World Trade Center. Okay. Like like many people, I, I was actually at work when the um, the airplanes crashed into the Trade Center, and that night I actually got a phone call from Demort requesting that you know, am I available, and if so. We were going to be meeting the next day in Chicago at 7 a.m. Now, Chicago is about a five-hour drive from Michigan. And I say drive because, remember, at that point, all the flights were canceled. There was nothing flying. So That's right. Yeah, yeah so about 2 a.m., uh, myself, Dr. Warnick, um, we got in our car and we actually drove to Chicago. We were flown later that day. I think we were one of, you know, only a handful of flights that were actually in the air. But we were, tra- we were flown on a, a military jet to Stewart Air Force Base, which was north of New York City. And that was sort of like the holding area for all the DMORC team people coming in. And for the World Trade Center, we ended up staying in a hotel um, near the airport, near LaGuardia. And we were working um, two 12-hour shifts, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And depending on what your specialty in DMORC was, that's sort of what you did. So that was a difficult type uh, mass disaster because one, nobody knew what was going on. We, we, everyone, we had, we all had questions as to what's really happening. Why aren't they telling us? Which turned out to be nothing. Why is there so much security? And you know, everyone was, you know, very scared. Cell phones were just beginning back then, and they didn't work very well. It was hard to communicate with their families. And right. If you remember back, the people that saw it, they would have posters all over the walls uh, throughout the city. And oh, sure. So the people that were missing, people that died, it was very much in your face. It wasn't like you could ignore and just do your job because you're totally inundated by the, all these individuals that have been passed away in the attack. But we were staying in hotels and we had food so it wasn't a rustic type deployment it was just a very psychologically hard deployment while we went ahead and did our things joining us now to go deeper into this conversation and look at it from the other side of the world uh, from milwaukee we have pathologist assistant uh, dennis strink who also uh, runs the people of pathology podcast welcome dennis Oh, thank you. So, Dennis, uh, we're, we're looking at 9-11 uh, and the events of the day. Can you shed any light for us on what the reports were like at, at Ground Zero at all? 
actually, I can remember that day very well. I was at work. I had just gotten to work, and I remember uh, we all gathered around the, the television at work uh, watching the news reports, and it was just – it just seemed like chaos. Um, nobody really knew what was going on at, at first anyways, and it seemed like things were all sort of happening at once, and it was hard to – it was hard to process everything, and um, – from what I understand, even even there on the ground at Ground Zero, they weren't really sure what they were up against. And, you know, you have to remember, this was 2001, so cell phones were still fairly new. And uh, there on the ground, they didn't get a lot of – the reception wasn't very good. They couldn't really contact their families very well to, to let them know what they were doing. So I think at first, especially, um, it was it was mostly chaos. We, we we hear the term uh, first responders. Who who were the first responders? What was it a makeup? Was it a, a mix of the population? What what was the mix of first responders? Uh, from what I understand, you, you know, you had the the firefighters and the police, uh, EMTs. You know, it was there in New York City, so you've got the uh, the Coast Guard is there, um, and I, I think. Even the you know the the office of the the chief, office of chief medical examiner uh, there in New York City was involved as well. So all of those people uh, were were first responders, um, you know, there on the scene. And I think, from what I understand, as, as many people that could volunteer to help did, and you know, people came there from other parts of the country as well, especially to, to help with the recovery effort. We we know now that there's some of the dangers that that they faced. Was there any known discussion about the, the the dangers such as you know breathing equipment or was breathing equipment used or not used or was it just no this has to get done we need to clean this up right now i think it was a little bit of both i mean they knew there was a cloud of dust in the air and you know there was the danger of fire and just the you know the, the wreckage itself it was all this sort of jagged metal and, and things like that but and i think people had an idea that the air quality maybe wasn't the best. And I know they, they used, you know, whatever sort of uh, masks or respirators that they had, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't professional grade or anything like that. I don't think it was up to the level that maybe it, it should have been, but I, again, I don't, I don't know that they knew at the time what, what sort of danger it was. And and how long did the cleanup take, uh, from I guess beginning to end, uh, you know, even even little bits, even to I guess the, there's a memorial now there. Is that right? What I've read is that by May of 2002, uh, the cleanup was completed. But I don't know if that includes uh, sort of you know identification of all of the uh, remains and things like that. I think that took quite a bit longer, and, you know. And then of course, uh, completely cleaning up the site and actually building on it took you know it took years after that as time has elapsed and you as a pathologist assistant you're working with people in that profession in the medical profession have they shared stories with you about whether or not it changed the way they viewed their work uh, in the medical sector of our society because we always know we need you but speaking as an Australian male, uh, we, we tend to put off doctors and the medical system as much as we can. Uh, this would have surely brought that field front and centre in their own minds and lives as much as for society. 
Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I've spoken to, to two people on, on my podcast that were part of the recovery effort. And, you know, it's certainly still fresh in their memories. I think it does change you when you're up against something like that. I mean, they were working 12-hour shifts for, for day after day after day. And just, you know, to be surrounded by that. And, you know, a lot of the families who had family members that were missing uh, they, they had signs and, you know, they made posters and things. So that was, you know, in their minds and really right in front of them all of the time. So I think there was a psychological effect there that I, I don't, I don't think they'll ever forget. How does it parallel with the onset of COVID-19, which is itself another national emergency? Uh, has that had a similar uh, effect at the mindset level or the psyche level for these people? I, I don't know because the, the, the nine 11 was very, um, it, it, it united this country for, for a, a brief moment, which is a f- fairly rare thing for us. And COVID has had more of the opposite effect, I think, because there's differing opinions about, uh, the severity and, and, and things like that. Um, so I don't, I don't think it, it's, it's similar in its, uh, you know, that is sort of uh, uh, monopolized the, the news and things like that. But as far as uniting the, the entire country, it, it hasn't really done that. Dennis, what is the current reflection of 9-11 in the psyche of Americans that you mix with? You know, it's something that we'll never forget. For me, this is a, kind of a defining moment in, in my generation, at least, um, and, you know, there are memorials every year and you, you have special news reports every year. And it's, it's just, you know, it's something we, we never forget. And for me, I, you know, I, I, I don't live anywhere near New York. I'm in Milwaukee, but I remember we're, we're close to the Milwaukee airport. And I remember for weeks after it happened, it just that the silence, because there were no planes in the air, it just was very eerie for, for the longest time. And, um, that's that's something I'll never forget. If you know you've heard the silence being deafening or whatever, it was something like that. It just was so strange, um, and I think that's that's something I, I won't forget for you know maybe ever, but definitely for a long time. Do you know some of the long term consequences of the the first responders? I have heard, yeah, that there's uh, you know because of all the, the dust particles were, that were in the air, and there was uh, you, you know there's lots of reports of, of, of cancer and just like respiratory uh, diseases in the first responders, um, all, all different kinds from, from, you know, slight to, to very severe. What is the, the treatment for uh, first responders? Like, I mean, are they held in esteem now? Is there, is there, are they revered or has that sort of just dissipated over time? It maybe has dissipated a little bit, but at the time, you know, they were all heroes to us. Every every single person that was there, no matter what they were doing, they were all, you know, national heroes. And I think, you know, maybe because it's been a number of years now, that's not, uh, it's not something we think about a, 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 as much, but they're still held to that regard to us mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And Dennis, one final question. 
uh, in the wake of 9-11, I'm sure there would have been new systems and procedures put into place in the medical fraternity, uh, hospitals, um, uh, emergency first responders, etc. Uh, I imagine that what we're doing at the moment in dealing with COVID-19, similar changes are taking place. Can you just, from, from your perspective, are there things you've noted that have been evolutionary steps that we've taken uh, as far as the management of uh, either the work we're doing as pathologists or the the work in the hospital medical system? Um, I mean, I think the biggest change that came out of 9-11 was definitely different security procedures. Um, And I don't know that that really affects that, you know, pathology so much, but um, just getting into and out of the hospital every day was, was a little bit, more difficult because you, uh, there there was some screening and, and now especially you've got screening, you know some some hospitals will take your temperature every day when you when you when you go there, um, so I think things like that are definitely similar. Dennis, thanks for taking us through some of those reflections. And if people want to listen to your podcast, uh, how might they find it? Well, the podcast is called People of Pathology Podcast. It's available. Uh, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, pretty much every major platform. And I believe there's a Dr. Travis Brown who might or might not have appeared on your podcast. Uh, is that is that true? <laughs> that is absolutely true, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Look, thank you very much for your time, Dennis. We really appreciate your insight. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So, Travis, if we return back to Ground Zero now, where this all took place, more or less what happened is those buildings were aerosoled. What does that mean? And what happens when you aerosol a building? So, well, honestly, we don't know. That's the, this is uh, the experience that effectively caused a toxic plume of dust. Uh, this was a, an environmental disaster uh, that had not been seen before. So, and it created, as we said, the WTC dust, And the majority of that is composed of coarse particles. Now, what we mean by that is that the majority were between 2.5 and 100 micrometers in size. So less than 1% was fine dust. And what this means for people and people surrounding is where it gets lodged in their lungs in their mouth in their nose because to go deeper would need to be smaller particles exactly so when we get it down to very small it can go all the way into the lungs if it's not small if it's these coarse particles it will get trapped in the nose the throat mouth the trachea and the bronchus and the bronchi when we look at that we also note that other exposed areas will get affected This is the eyes as well, and also be swallowed. When the building collapsed and concrete slab hits concrete slab, thousands of New Yorkers, including residents, workers, office workers, police officers, all became exposed. Therefore, this dust that was everywhere, you've you've talked about the the gradual collapsing. In analysing that dust, what do we find? What, what are the core ingredients? When we break it down, well, we're looking at composition of certainly cement. Mm-hmm. We have gypsum. Now, gypsum is used in drywall and concrete blocks. Uh, we also have asbestos that was about. Uh, in 
greater than 1% levels were, were known to be measured, which is a significant risk. We also had lead and other heavy metals. With the jet fuel burning, we have things like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, a PAH. So that is toxic. We also have something that's called polychlorinated biphenyls, abbreviated to PCB. Now, these are used in electrical transformers. They're toxic in themselves, but then if you mix it with a high-energy burn, become even more toxic. Because that's a key thing here, isn't it? This is not just going to a normal building fire. This is hot. This is hot. This is burning jet fuel. Uh, Heat. We also have dioxins, which is a byproduct of the manufacturing process and is a serious pollutant as a highly toxic compound, was recorded in the highest level around ground zero. We have glass fibres. What are glass fibres? So it will be glass that's ground and aerosoled and sort of in the air because you've got thousands of windows that have been smashed and ground down by other concrete. And then you have silica, which is a age-old, uh, well-known occupational hazard that if you breathe in can cause problems. So let's look at these various elements one by one and, and break them down even further. Because you, you just mentioned gypsum uh, before, all those, all that drywall, you don't even think about it when you're walking around an office. What, what do we get there? So, so gypsum is calcium sulfate, and this is a mineral dust. And it's, it's used in, in a variety of industries, including agriculture, such, and it can change the composition of soil and used to break down clay soils. But it's also used in construction with drywalls and ceilings and plasterboards. Uh, It's used in concrete blocks. Uh, There's a a case report of a person who inhaled. It was a silo worker and was buried under an accidental avalanche and breathed in this concentrated gypsum powder. Uh, And it caused them uh, inflammation of their airways and they needed treatment. What we called, it was called acute tracheobronchitis. Uh, they needed treatment for that. Now, that's a specialised case, but mm. that's what gypsum can do. Silica is another one, isn't it? It is, it is. And that, as I said, that's a well-known occupational hazard, um, but it's highly fibrogenic. So what that means is it causes a disease called chronic silicosis. And this is a fibrosing, a hardening of the lungs. And it's dose-related. So the more silica you get, the more likely or the more the faster it will present but in majority of individuals who are exposed uh, it will occur over 10 to 20 to 30 years for it to present and normally will present quite late and but you can get if you get a really high dose you can get a, an accelerated or a rapid phase and these patients also have an increased risk of lung cancer Uh, an increased risk of uh, infections such as TB or atypical mycobacteria or fungi. Another item was asbestos, and it's still close to my heart because we did an episode on asbestos uh, a few episodes ago. And and this was also in in the dust that was about. Again, as we discussed before in the previous episode, this causes asbestosis. It can increase the risk of lung cancer as well as the rare condition of mesothelioma. That is a deadly cocktail. It, It is. And when we combine all of this, let's 
read it out again just to get the the importance. We're looking cement, gypsum, asbestos, lead and other heavy metals, polycyclic Aramaic hydrocarbons, polychlorinated biphenyls, dioxin, silica and glass in fires with toxic chemicals. But there is something that makes it even a little bit worse. And that is that the alkalinity of the dust is very high. When they tested it, they tested indoor and outdoor. And outdoor was known to be around a pH of about 9. Now, the body regulates pH very closely. So generally in the body, it's a pH of 7.35 to 7.45. The body has two mechanisms to keep it at that, and they work very well. You go outside that range, you can become very sick, or you are very sick, uh, and we need to balance that. It was at nine. When we look at the WTC dust indoor, it had an alkalinity, a pH of 11 to 12. Oh my God. And that is in the range of cement powder and liquid bleach. So why is the difference? The difference is on the 14th of September, they had rain and the rain diluted the outdoor dust alkalinity level. But between the September the 11th and September the 14th, the alkalinity indoor and outdoor would have been around 11. The cleanup effort took 24 hours, seven days a week, as discussed with Dennis, around nine to 10 months. 1.8 million tons of rubble was removed. And the exposure to this dust, even as it settled, would still be mixed when you pick up and move it. There was digging, drilling, and loading. The health effects were significant and lifelong. And we haven't even mentioned the emotional toil that all of this would have had. And that wasn't the only thing either, because they're exposed to the bodies of the victims, these first responders, and they all had to be recovered and ID'd. So that's a lot of time, long-time exposure for those people carrying out those roles. Let's turn the pathology lens to the story of 9-11 now, in particular, the ongoing uh, ramifications as far as human health is concerned. When something like this happens that's never happened before, we learn as we're going. When people started to examine what the dust did, there was a study done three years afterwards on mice Mm -hmm. of these uh, exposed to WTC. And what they found was that the mice got a a moderate pulmonary or or lung inflammation and they had hyperreactive airways. It shows that the lungs were affected, but it didn't tell us the long-term effects. Mm -hmm. The United States established a World Trade Center Health Program, uh, abbreviated to WTCHP. There are two groups that they look after, and this was responders and survivors. And responders were the emergency crews and recovery effort, clean-up workers and volunteers who looked after cleaning up the site. They also included the Pentagon and Shanksville, Pennsylvania regions. To date, they have about 79,000 people. The survivors who were 
present on the day who either worked, lived or schooled in the New York City disaster area amount to 26,000 people. But these are not just the people affected, their families were affected. The people who died on the day were affected. So there is an emotional toll on all of this. And what did the studies find as they looked at these? First thing, we noticed that these people who were first responders had increased cardiovascular risk. So they were having cardiovascular events higher than the normal population. And it was interesting because those who even arrived before noon had a higher risk than those who who arrived in the afternoon. So the dust that they inhaled had a cardiovascular risk associated with it. We also know that the top 10 conditions have been studied and the most significant injury was something called chronic rhinosinusitis, which is a complex way of saying uh, that they got inflammation of the sinuses and the nose airways. And again, that makes sense. This is coarse dust Mm. that they're breathing in and swallowing, which means leads us to the second one, gastroesophageal reflux is number two. They have, third one was asthma, and they got increased cancers. So the dust that they held was, had high alkaline, was coarse and caustic, and it caused these problems mainly in the airways as they breathed, breathed it in. Because as soon as you breathe in something that's highly alkaline, it will react and cause injury, burns. Not only that, one that we haven't mentioned is the post-traumatic stress disorder that this had. It was certainly increased, and depending on the population, uh, between 4 to 30% of respondents had increased risk of PTSD. And associated with this is an increase in mortality associated with that. One of them, number, number four, is they have increased risk of cancer. Oddly enough, and I'm not sure I've got my mind fully around this, the most common one was non-melanotic skin cancer. So basal cell carcinoma and and squamous cell carcinoma. How might that be the case? Is that direct skin irritation under clothing? I I don't, I'm not sure. I I genuinely don't know the mechanism behind it. Uh, I, I don't know if anyone does, but they had an increased risk. Uh, That's the top cancer. But then we also have prostate and breast cancer as the top cancers that they're associated with. There's over 60 cancers that they have listed as can be associated. And then we get the mix of people having multiple conditions related to this. First responders had increased risk, therefore, of upper respiratory problems, asthma, gastroesophageal reflux, and all of that can be associated to inhalation and swallowing the dust. They have increased risk of cancers, including skin cancers, prostate, breast, and melanoma as well. So from a pathology point of view, what are we looking at? We're looking at some of the people who have inhaled a toxic dust. Their pathology is in their upper airways, but also a systemic illness that has occurred and it increases their risk of cancer. So this is effectively an acute occupational event that has exposed them to toxic dust and then 
they've had ongoing chronic health issues. Can I put you on the spot with a question? Sure. What tests would the, the, the GPs and other doctors have been ordering for these first responders in the wake of this event? And if we think about it today, what do you think might have been missed that hindsight would teach us would have been a useful uh, test to have ordered through a place like a ClinPath? It would have been uh, the there would have been no blood test directly because again occupational tends to affect the area directly affected. Uh, so, as I say, if toxic liquid gets on your skin, that directly to the skin. This was inhaled. These people probably would have had like breathing difficulties, dyspnea, uh, maybe had stridor. So that's a that's a sound that they make. They may have had persistent coughing. Uh, irritation, difficulty breathing. These are all symptoms they would have had. It would have been upper respiratory. So it would have been an examination. It would have been trying to exclude anything. It may have been respiratory tests. They would have had consideration for a bronchoscope. So looking at the airways with a camera. And you would have found probably dust and irritation. If they had have had a, done a biopsy, you would have seen that the irritation of the airways. Now, because it is in the airways, normally what we're doing, if we're coughing things up, we've got mucus and cilia. So little villi that push up the mucus and push up foreign objects out and we cough them up. When that starts to get irritated, they get injured and you can't, you can't either get rid of it or cough it out. If you get chronic irritation, let's use the example of smoking, what happens is that cilia gets damaged so much it transitions into squamous cells, which is like on the skin. That increases your risk of lung cancer. Chronic irritation causes inflammation. If you change the airways, then you have increased risk of cancer. So this dust could certainly cause a chronic irritation. And those nice little cilia that push everything out that shouldn't be there may have been damaged and been able not to get rid of the dust. So when we look at this as a whole, what do we have? There was a cost, there was a price for these people going in. The first responders paid a price for, with their health to help their fellow countrymen. They had risk of lifelong illnesses, and some even lost their lives. They are proud of what they have done, and they should be. It's nothing short of heroic. It is an amazing thing, and I know that most of them would do it again if it happened. We went to ground zero of Pentagon and Shanksville to help people first and then help their families bury someone or something. You made me come down here the day before my 69th round of chemo. And I'm going to make sure that you never forget to take care of the 9-11 responders. Well, I have no regrets. No regrets whatsoever. 9-11 uh, happened. We got called down. It's my job as an NYPD detective to respond to emergencies. So no hesitation. What went down? Spent uh, about three months down there doing the bucket brigade, 
doing a rooftop uh, detail, trying to find remains. I did what every other FDNY, NYPD, EMS worker, everybody. I'm, no, I'm nobody special. I did what all the other guys did. And now we're paying the price for it. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening and just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there, and we'd love to have you along.